I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World... Ronald Reagan was a singularly unique man, a conservative who championed a wildly successful revolution, leading to more freedom and less government for the American people and to the fall of communism in the Soviet Union, while boosting American morale, which had been his three big goals. He was the first president in many years who believed optimism from the Oval Office had a direct bearing on the affairs of the nation. As a consequence, he left office more popular than when he entered with a 73% approval rating from the American people. He's beloved even today, as his presidential library is visited far more than any other presidential library by more than 5 million people each year. Here to discuss his new book, The Search for Reagan, The Appealing Intellectual Conservatism of Ronald Reagan, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest and my friend, Craig Shirley. He's a New York Times bestselling author, presidential historian, author of 11 books, including six on Reagan, and I would argue that he is far and away the leading student of Ronald Reagan and has been just amazingly effective in trying to help teach the country and the world about an enormously successful president. Craig, welcome and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Thank you for the invitation, Newt. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, both you and your wife, Serene, worked for President Reagan in Washington in the 1980s. What was that experience like working with him? We have such fond memories of that time, Newt. It was a halcyon time for both of us. We were committed conservatives. I imagine it probably was the same for young people working in Washington when John Kennedy was president. There was something inspirational about him. You look forward to every day. It was a happy, happy time. It was a time of hope. You just loved being in Washington. You loved working for a man who you utterly believed in. And 
quite honestly, we adored Ronald Reagan. I remember going to many, many speeches of Reagan's and many, many Christmas parties and some CPACs and things like that. And it was just such an exciting time. You wrote five books that are sort of traditional histories, introducing and explaining the Reagan experience. But then with your new book, you took a very different approach, the search for Reagan, the appealing intellectual conservatism of Ronald Reagan. I'm very curious, what led you to take this new approach? Thank you for noting that, Newt. Two reasons. One is that there's never been a book that really explored Reagan's considerable intellect. You remember Marty, his old research aide and assistant. I knew Marty for many years, but in the 80s, I remember having lunch with Marty one time, and he told me he estimated Reagan's IQ at being 175. Now, Marty would know he had all sorts of undergraduate and graduate degrees from Ivy League schools and from MIT. And so he knew from what he was talking about when he saw an intelligent man. Of course, you and I would both say an intelligent man is measured by many yardsticks. We know that. But two good ones are the ability to write. And Reagan wrote all the time. He wrote probably more letters as president than any other president before him. He wrote radio scripts which he gave from the Oval Office every Saturday. And before that, as presidential candidate, he wrote twice a week op-eds that were syndicated to 500 newspapers. So he wrote two autobiographies, of course. That is just the true mark of an intellect. I wanted to explore Reagan's mind, but also his compassion. But also, as a third reason, was to refute the lies of the left that have emerged over the years about Ronald Reagan, about Ronald Reagan and gays, about Ronald Reagan and blacks, about Ronald Reagan and this issue, that issue, whatever. You know, Napoleon once said, history is a pack of lies agreed upon. And that there's so many lies about Reagan and gays and Reagan and the issue of AIDS. And as a matter of fact, AIDS didn't come on the national political scene. They weren't part of a dialogue until really 1981 or 82. But then it was thought to be afflicting, what, Haitians and hemophiliacs. And it was only a couple of years later that we came to understand its main target was gays. And Reagan, by 1985, was not only talking about it, he was talking about it in his State of the Union address in 1985, and he committed billions of dollars to AIDS research. So, and of course, this is never mentioned by the left. And of course, he spoke out often on AIDS. He committed billions. And also in the post-presidency, he and Mrs. Reagan did a lot of fundraising for a pediatric AIDS foundation. So to say that Reagan was insensitive to that issue is just a lie. So I wanted to refute the lies of the left while exploring his intellect. I was very, very careful about the title. I had a tussle with the publishers about that. If you're a writer, you always have a tussle with your publisher. I wanted something evocative of Churchill. And of course, you remember Martin Gilbert wrote In Search of Churchill. And so I wanted to pick something similar because these are two of the greatest men of the 20th century, Winston Churchill and Ronald Reagan. I thought Reagan deserved that. And also, of course, the subtitle, I also had a tussle with the publishers about I lost it, the appealing intellectual conservatism. Well, to my mind, conservatism is intellectualism. So to call it intellectual conservatism is redundant. But that's another fight I lost with the publishers. So. To me, it communicates a case that there is a conservatism that's learnable and that Reagan understood it and Reagan taught it. And as you know, I've always said that our great achievement with the contract with America and electing the first House Republican majority in 40 years, we totally stood on Reagan's shoulders. And it was the act of having studying Reagan. Recently, I wrote a book called March to the Majority precisely to try to get back to the current generation of Republicans that they have gone so far away 
from the things that worked with Reagan and the things that worked with us, that you really need almost a cultural revolution inside the Republican Party to get back to an effective, competent conservatism. Couldn't agree more. The Republicans today are all tactical. It's all about one-upsmanship with each other or with their liberal opponents. There's nothing strategic about them. They don't think beyond tomorrow's headline or tomorrow's new soundbite. They don't think in terms like the contract did and like Reagan did about planning not only for the country, but for the ideology, for the party, for the future. Is that what do we stand for and how are we going to achieve it? None of that thinking that goes on inside like that inside the Republican Party today. It's really sad to see. I blame weak politicians and also ne'er-do-well consultants who are only in it for the money. Look at the case of Nikki Haley. She's all tactical. There's nothing about her that's strategic at all. And she's just staying in because I agree with Trump. I don't think she knows how to get out. But secondly, is, is that it's all personal and she's being pushed by the consultants around her or simply want her to stay as long as possible so they can make as much money as possible. Candidates become a gravy train. And I think they sometimes don't realize all too many of their consultants, they're in fact simply an opportunity to earn a living. The thing about Reagan was, Reagan was a cause. And you can argue, I think, that Trump is a cause. Most candidates are not. Most candidates are just ambitious people who hire other people who hopefully will do something. No, well, the contract obviously was a cause, It was about a set of values for a political party to advance to help the country. Reagan was about a set of values to advance to help the country. Trump is about a set of values to advance to help the country. You picked on something in the book, and that is the degree to which Reagan led the Screen Actors Guild strike in the spring of 1945. His role here is amazing, and I had a sense that this is one of the places Reagan learns to negotiate Talk a little bit about that strike and his role as the president of the Screen Actors Guild. It was an ongoing tussle with the studios over compensation for actors. It was over contracts, over how actors were treated. And Reagan said, look, we're calling a strike. And the studios didn't believe him. And finally, he did call a strike. The studios held out for a number of months. He finally broke their will and got them to agree to the terms that he wanted for the actors and actresses who are members of the Screen Actors Guild. I think also the more longer lasting incident that happened with him as president of the Screen Actors Guild was over the whole issue of compensation residuals for movie actors and actresses. For years, the studios had been making movies and then later TV shows, and they could rebroadcast them with impunity, make a lot of money, and not have to compensate the actors and actresses. But one time when they were paid to star in those various TV shows and various movies so that studio could broadcast Gone with the Wind a thousand times, but only pay Vivian Lee once. And Reagan went to the mat with the studios. And today there are many, many aging actors and actresses who are living comfortably because of Ronald Reagan. It's ironic that the average conservative who would never think of themselves as pro-union elected as president, a union president. The first ever. There's a story that it was after one of the Screen Actors Guild meetings that Reagan ends up having a drink with a guy who says, I really am a Stalinist. And when we take over, you're either going to go to jail or we're going to kill you. And Reagan concluded the guy was serious and that that was a moment of conversion to sort of a militant anti-communism 
because he began to realize how serious they were about creating totalitarian control. I mean, do you think that story is true? I do think it's true. In fact, the actor, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the actor was Sterling Hayden, who later was outed as a communist and later had a bit part in the original Godfather movie. He played the corrupt police chief, which seemed kind of appropriate. I believe it was Sterling Hayden, who also said about Reagan versus the communists. And the communists, it was very, very deliberate. New, You know, they saw Hollywood as invaluable to gain control of, to push a political agenda. And they wanted to gain control of Hollywood to take things over. And in fact, you know, you go back to the 40s, two movies that were produced that were just pans to communist Russia. One was called Mission to Moscow, and the other was Song of Russia. And that showed the leftward tilt of Hollywood in the post-World War II era. So Hollywood was already leaned that way. And the communists wanted to take over the unions and eventually take over the studios to control the message, which was toward a socialist and communist state. So Reagan comes out of that experience as a guy who had voted for Franklin Delano Roosevelt and who, as late as 1948, does a commercial for both Hubert Humphrey for Senate and President Truman. And then to what extent do you think that it was his wife's impact and her father's impact that helped move Reagan away from the Democrats? I don't think much. Reagan began his historic move to the right much earlier before he met Nancy while he was still married to Jane Wyman. It was a confiscatory tax policy of the 1940s, which were taken up to 95% of his income. And then later, he saw the communist provocateurs in Hollywood. He started reading publications and coming to understand the threat of collectivism, the threat to individuality. His historic move to the right happened before he met Nancy. So if you go back and you look at this period as Reagan is making the transition, there's a small book by Tom Evans called The Education of Ronald Reagan, His Years at General Electric. I thought it was very revealing. In many ways, the GE executive Lemuel Boulware was an early mentor of Ronald Reagan's. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reagan went through this period, which maybe you can explain. Apparently, he had a really bad flight in 45 and quit flying. He had two bad flights, and he swore off flying until 1966, when his brother practically threw him on an airplane from Los Angeles, San Francisco, to go up for a fundraiser for his nascent run for governor. He had two bad flying experiences in the early 40s. One was on a plane back from Catalina Island. They ran into a terrible, terrible electrical storm and barely landed. And then another time when he was on a bond drive, it was on a snowy day and the plane took off in this terrible snowstorm. And again, they had lots of trouble and finally landed in Los Angeles. He was a white knuckle flyer after that. I mean, he never flew after that. He swore off flying from 1945 until 1966. So for 21 years, he refused to fly an airplane because he had those two bad experiences. And he figured that was enough. That was enough for any man. There are two anecdotes about that. I mean, one is that Bulwar would give him conservative economic books and Reagan's going around the country to GE by train. So he has lots of time. He didn't play cards. He didn't hang out in the club car. And he read. Yes. When he was on the GE lecture circuit, he might take the train from Los Angeles to Syracuse, New York, 3,000 miles. So it might be a couple of days. But he wouldn't go to, as you said, he wouldn't go to the club car. He wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a boozer. He wasn't a card player. He would get a private suite with a steamer full of books and just sit and read for several days. He had a good education at Eureka. He had a double major at Eureka, but he was also constantly learning. He was an autodidact in that he was constantly learning, constantly teaching. Reagan's intellect grew after the 1940s when most men reached a point in their life with a fixed ideology by the time they're 40 years old. But Reagan really acquired many position on many issues after he was 40. His position on nuclear war and his position on taxes, his position on so many issues began well after his 40th birthday. Jerry Pornell was a good friend of mine, Ren, great science fiction writer. As an engineer, it helped design the radar-guided machine guns at the back of the B-52. You got to go to see Reagan when Reagan was governor. He gets an hour schedule to talk about space. And about halfway into the conversation, he stopped and he said, Governor, I don't want to insult you, but I'm curious. You're so well briefed. 
I'd like to meet the staff person who did the briefing on space. And Reagan broke up laughing. He said, nobody briefed me. He said, I just read all the time. And I read a lot about space. And Pornell was just blown away. I thought this was so different than the public image. Reagan read five newspapers a day and one nonfiction book a week. There's a story I hope is accurate. I was told, you know, Reagan decides to run, hires the best consulting firm in California for this governor's race, Spencer and Roberts. And they create this big shoebox filled with all these pieces of information because they want to prove he's smart enough to be governor because this was back when actors were not thought generally to be capable of this. And so he goes to the first town hall meeting. And of course, as a professional actor, he can memorize the entire box in one night. So he goes to this town hall meeting. And the first question is, what are you going to do about Berkeley? Which isn't in the box. <laughs> and he comes back and he says to him, guys, we don't have this in the box. And they said, well, it's not really an issue. And he goes to the second meeting. First question is, what are you going to do about those radicals at Berkeley? And he comes back and he says to him, guys, if the voters think it's an issue, it's an issue. And I always thought the wisdom, very much like Lincoln, Reagan understood that what the public thought mattered more than what the consultant thought. When he was president, Reagan got more letters written to him as president than anybody else did. Each day he would get from his secretaries a number of letters. And Reagan read those every day. That was how he stayed in touch with the American people, was by reading the letters from the American people and not listening to the Washington Post or listening to his advisors or consultants, but staying in touch with as many people as possible. One of the great crises of his career that would have, I think, really dramatically weakened somebody who wasn't as strategically smart was running on an anti-tax platform and then discovering that the state was virtually bankrupt. And the way he handled that, which you describe brilliantly in your book, walk us through from a, the whole strategic way Reagan thinks things through and the speed and decisiveness with which he responded to reality. He was elected governor and he found to his chagrin that everything he said in the campaign was exactly true, was that California was spending a million dollars a day more than it was taking in. It was near to going bankrupt and he needed to do something. And this is where he didn't compromise his principles, but he did compromise with his political opponents. For instance, Big Daddy Jesse Unruh, who was then the most powerful Democrat in Sacramento, they sit down and they went through the budget line by line. They got rid of a lot of wasteful spending. It did require a small tax increase, but it was phased out. And as a matter of fact, left the state with a surplus. And Reagan's first instinct and what he did with that surplus was that he gave it back to the California taxpayers. He didn't say, oh, let's go, we've got more money. Let's go find a new program to spend it on or some reason for the state to keep it. He didn't want the state to keep anything more than it really needed to, to operate. So he gave something like $500 million back to the folks of California. There's a story that he's standing in concrete against the tax increase and that he handles it by going to the press conference and saying, Guys, what you're hearing is the sound of concrete breaking. Concrete cracking, yes, that's right. <laughs> Which I think, again, people forget Reagan's sense of humor about himself, among other things, was one of the most winning parts of his personality. I'm glad you mentioned that, Newt. He always said the humor you used against yourself is the best type of humor. He would poke fun at himself all the time. He had that grace and that charm, but that utter self-confidence 
to be able to poke fun at himself over so many things. You know, I think it was in the maybe the 92 convention. He said, you know, I knew Thomas Jefferson. Yes, right, right. He turned it around to be such a zinger on Bill Clinton. I remember the speech well because it was written by a friend of mine, Landon Parvin. Reagan got up there and says, this new man they've chosen says he's the new Thomas Jefferson. Well, let me tell you something. I knew Thomas Jefferson. He was a friend of mine. And Governor Clinton, you're no Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, which was also a takeoff on the line that had been used against Dan Quayle just four years earlier. I flew a couple times on Air Force One. He would always come back and tell jokes. And he particularly collected anti-Soviet jokes. Much like Lincoln, I think he relieved the tension by telling jokes and by being humorous and by looking for positive things. Very much so. I remember that one anti-Soviet joke that he told about a Soviet citizen is talking to an American citizen, and an American citizen says, hey, in this country, I can walk into the Oval Office, I can pound my head on the table and say, I don't like the job you're doing, Mr. President. And the Soviet citizen says, I can do the same thing. I can go into the Kremlin. I can go to the Soviet premier's office. I can pound on the table and I can say, I don't like the job Ronald Reagan is doing. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. 
players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most interesting and serious parts of the Reagan story, in 76, he decides to challenge Gerald Ford. Ford had become president by accident. Nixon was forced out of office in what I think was a coup, but nonetheless, Ford is there. Why do you think Reagan decided to run? And do you think when he first decided he thought he would win or he just thought it was necessary? He thought he was going to win. He really always thought he was going to win. And he came damn near close to winning. It wasn't for shenanigans and the Illinois, Ohio, Mississippi, and New Jersey delegations, because he only lost by 69 delegate votes out of 2,270 voted. So it's just a hair's breadth of losing. But I'll tell you the reason he decided to run was because Ford's snub of Alexander Solzhenitsyn at the urging of Henry Kissinger. Solzhenitsyn was expelled from the Soviet Union. They didn't want to kill him because there was too much light on him. But he was expelled and actually became a cause celeb in the United States and in the West. And ironically, there was a reception on Capitol Hill And the two people who co-sponsored the reception were Jesse Helms and Senator Joe Biden of Delaware. The one person who couldn't make it unofficially was Ronald Reagan. But he wrote many op-eds about Solzhenitsyn, did many radio commentaries. And then when the issue came up about President Ford meeting with Solzhenitsyn, which would have angered the Soviets, and Reagan's attitude would have been, you know, go screw yourself. But Ford knuckled under to Henry Kissinger's advice to snub Solzhenitsyn. And this so angered Reagan. If Ford had met with Solzhenitsyn, Reagan might not have ever run. It's interesting because he comes very close, and the Panama Canal plays a big role in that. And at the convention, in one of the most interesting moments of history that you could never invent, Ford asked him to come down and say a few words. And he basically delivers the speech he would have given as his acceptance speech. A good friend of mine said, at the end of that speech, he realized they'd nominated the wrong guy. It was electrifying. Ford spoke politely, but when Reagan spoke, they said, let us march. That's right. And Ford gave a pretty decent speech that night, which was then totally overshadowed by Reagan. There's this moment, I think it's the next day, where Reagan meets with his entire team. And he really talks as though it's over. You know, the cause will go on, the cause will live. But you had the sense that he thought he was now going back to the ranch and that probably he would never again be a factor. He listened to the American people because he was out campaigning for everybody that fall. He was every place. He was campaigning for you. He was campaigning for many candidates. He didn't campaign much for Gerald Ford, did a couple of events for him, but that was it. But that speech you referred to, It was broadcast live on all three networks. Everybody in the world heard it. Everybody in America heard it because it was the only thing on. And every place Reagan went that fall, chambermaids, cops, everybody said, Governor, you've got to run again. You've got to try it again. You've got to run again. And I think that, as much as anything, convinced him to run one more time. How much do you think his stature grew out of having been a genuine movie star? 
the people really knew him. They'd been in the movie theater. They'd seen him. I think it grew tremendously. Don't forget, not just movie star, but TV star, the GE Theater, which he'd been the host of, won several Emmys. It was a must-watch TV, sometimes had a market share of 50 55% of the American audience on any given Sunday night. He was an authority figure as the host of that. But, you know, in the movies, he was always the good guy, always played the good guy. Only one movie was he ever in, The Killers, which was made in 1964, which he never watched. He refused to watch it. Was he a bad guy? He hated that movie. I have seen it, and he's totally unbelievable. Ronald Reagan cannot play the bad guy. No, he's out of character. He hated slapping Angie Dickinson. So he's an authority figure because he's a good guy. He's an authority figure because he's the host of GE Theater. And he develops a taste for being an executive, not a legislator. Because, you know, after his speech for Goldwater in 64, a lot of people out in California said, oh, governor, you got to run for Congress. Oh, governor, you got to run for the Senate. It was a group of businessmen in Los Angeles, the kitchen cabinet, evolved into the kitchen cabinet, who said, no, you should run for governor. And that whetted Reagan's appetite because he saw himself as a leader. One of the things that I think changed history, not for the better, was when Reagan finally wins the nomination, he picks his leading rival to be his vice presidential candidate. Yeah. There's one person they didn't think about because they thought about Jack Kemp and there were too young, too green, and there were bad rumors about him. The pickings were thin. Bob Dole didn't bring anything to the ticket because Reagan was going to carry the farm country anyway. Reagan knew that a winning convention is a unified convention. Unified conventions tend to win in the fall. Divided conventions tend to lose in the fall. Is that 64, the Republicans are united, they lose. 68, the Republicans are united, they win. 76, the Republicans are divided, they lose. 80, the Republicans are united, they win. And the same thing for the Democratic Party. In 72, the Democrats were divided, so they lost. In 64, they were united, so they won. In 68, they were horribly divided, so they lost. So Reagan knew this, but the pickings were thin. But the one guy that I wish he had thought about who took himself out of the running early was Senator Dick Schweiker of Pennsylvania. I got to know Senator Schweiker and his wife, Claire, while I was working on my first book. Delightful, delightful people. They've now both passed away, unfortunately, but they were lovely, lovely people. And, you know, he changed radically in the four years. He was a moderate Republican senator in 76 when Reagan picked him. I'll tell you what he was good on. He was pro-life. He was pro-Second Amendment. He was strong on captive nations, strong on national defense. And as a bonus, he was on Nixon's enemy list, which I consider to be a bonus. He helped Reagan in 76. But he wasn't considered in 1980, and I wish he had been, because in those intervening four years, he'd grown to become a rock-ribbed conservative on everything, on Kemp Roth and on national defense, on everything, right down the line. You're absolutely right. Picking Bush created a mess. It's something we're still struggling with. In a sense, there's been a Reagan wing and a Bush wing. Yes. Well, Bush wing slash neoconservatism, the internationalists, Bill Kristol, John Bolton, the wing of the party. To sort of drag you into controversy for a second, how do you think Reagan would have dealt with Ukraine? Better than Joe Biden, that's for sure. Joe Biden has really never told the American people what's at stake, what is really truly at stake. First of all, if Reagan was president, I don't think Putin would have invaded anyway. And Hamas would not have attacked Israel. They've been too scared of Reagan, the strong man. They would have been too scared of what he would do, how he would retaliate. That was his image. He would have been broadcasting 
many inspirational messages as he did with the old Soviet Union. A lot of strong diplomacy against Putin, not sanctions, because sanctions don't work, but certainly the threat of a war that Putin couldn't win if the U.S. got involved. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to urge everybody who's listened to us. Craig is, I think, the leading expert on Ronald Reagan, who was the most important president since Franklin Roosevelt and a man who genuinely changed history. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Your new book, The Search for Reagan, The Appealing Intellectual Conservatism of Ronald Reagan, is an important contribution. And of course, we might as well as fellow authors, I will also point out, they can buy the other five volumes, not to mention the terrific books you've written about 1941 and 1945. You're one of the leading conservative historians of our generation. And it is really important for people to understand how central Reagan was, and you have done more than any other single person to do that. So, Craig, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Thank you so, so much. That's so kind of you. I could talk with you for hours about this subject, but thank you for this time. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guest, Craig Shirley. You can get a link to buy his book, The Search for Reagan, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns, at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.